Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Hello, fans of Takeaways. Here is another NAOP Southern Nevada program recap. But before we get into it, let's congratulate our little chapter. NAOP Southern Nevada came back from the chapter leadership and legislative retreat in Washington, D.C. That was on February 13th. They came home with four awards, four national chapter merit awards. First and foremost, Recognized as Volunteer of the Year, no surprise, was Cassie Catania Sue. The Spotlight Award, the annual award show that we do here, was recognized as the Special Event of the Year. Our new initiative, I'm talking about Dolly, the Developing Organizational Leadership Institute, was a winner for the Educate, I can't even talk, Education Award of the Year. I had to slow it down for that one. And I'll speed it up for this one because once again, NAOP Southern Nevada won chapter of the year for a large chapter. That's pretty awesome. I want to congratulate everybody who was involved. I have to say I just love NAOP. I love what we're about. And I love that we are nationally recognized. All right, let's get into the February breakfast program. The title was What's Going On? An, inter- an Industry Perspective. Once again, I'm having trouble talking today. But that's all right. We'll keep going. The panelists that morning included Kevin Burke, CEO of Burke Construction, Brendan Keating, co-managing director of Boston Omaha Asset Management and chairman of Logic Commercial Real Estate, and Sebastian Torres, vice president with Comcap Advisors. The moderator that morning was Connie Brennan, publisher, CEO and owner of Nevada Business Magazine, and the program was sponsored by McCarthy. So you get a general contractor, a real estate broker, and a lender to talk about what they're seeing, and very quickly you start to get a picture of what all is going on. Connie is an absolute pro. I mean, she is probably literally a professional moderator, and she really just teased out the actual trends that the panelists are seeing, not just little sound bites here and there. Kevin and Brendan, they're as smart as can be. They are as active as can be. But I have to say, the breakout star that morning was Sebastian. This was his NAOP panel debut, and he absolutely crushed it. It's clear when he talks and you hear him talk that he is a very knowledgeable and active lender in commercial real estate. What you'll also hear is that he's a very knowledgeable and active lender with a hysterical personality. All right, I'm going to go away. You're going to hear applause, and then you will hear the full program from the February breakfast, what is going on and industry perspective. Enjoy. So good morning, everybody. Can you hear me okay? I'm gonna ask our panelists to come on up because I'm pretty lazy this morning. I'm gonna ask them to introduce themselves. Um, Thanks for the kind introduction, Cassie. I love that lady. Uh, and to McCarthy for sponsoring this morning. The magazine has been covering commercial real estate since our inception. 
in fact, and that was 35 years ago. In fact, it's the only industry that has a dedicated section every month for commercial real estate. My husband's a developer. I've got a couple kids that are commercial brokers. And they constantly remind me that it's much easier to report on it than it is to actually do it. And I would agree with that. I have the utmost respect for people in commercial real estate, especially those that do it with class and integrity, like our panelists here this morning. So we have three professionals that are seasons, and we're going to be talking about finance, investments, building and development, brokerage. And I'm going to allow each of them to introduce themselves. And then I'm going to throw an introductory question out. And that question is, lately, what are you spending the most brain power on? And what keeps you up at night? So we're going to start with my friend Kevin. Thanks, Connie. Buy on? Yes? Yes, good. Uh, Kevin Burke, I'm the CEO of Burke Construction Group. This is actually our 40th year here in the, uh, in the Valley. I'm also the, one of the three development partners at Matter Real Estate Group, the developers of Uncommons here in town. Let's see brain power. I, I would say last several years, it's really been about growth and, and how we can fuel growth with, uh, with talent. Um, most recently, I would say starting to think about AI and the nature how, or the aspects of that, how it will help and disrupt our industry. Um, what keeps me up at night? Boy, that's, that's a long list. Um, <laughs> You know, I would say, um, it, you know, most uh, at the top of that list, I would say would be execution risk. If, if you think about our industry, and when I say the industry, the architectural engineering and construction industries, we've been on this very long expansionary run since about 2011, and add some weight to that. So in U.S. in 2011, we did about $800 billion in all construction. So that, that would be residential, commercial, and infrastructure. Uh, we'll close out 23 in the U.S. at about $2 billion. So if you look at that long expansionary growth, um, it's been hard to recruit people into our space. So the execution risk today is, uh, is a, a, a challenge, and I would say our industry total is a bit, uh, is a bit fatigued at this point. So I think uh, as we look out, it, it's starting to get better because the interest rates are going to put some cooling effects on, on development and construction. But... Uh, that's certainly one of the things that keeps me up at my, at night. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Uh, Brendan Keating. Uh, I am a co-managing partner of Boston Omaha Asset Management, which is a uh, our asset management business. We raise capital from third-party partners alongside of our own and invest capital in commercial real estate, whether we're purchasing assets or um, placing hard money loans or higher interest loans. Um, and then my other uh, uh, job, but less, less hours of th this other job, is the chairman of uh, Logic Commercial Real Estate. We started Logic about eight and a half years ago. And uh, Jeff Jacobs, who's here today, now runs that for us. And uh, I get to, I say, as the chairman, it's kind of like being the grandpa of the business where I can come in and like offer suggestions, but I don't have to actually do the work. I'm there to um, help facilitate and, uh, and guide without uh, having the hands on the operation. Um, what keeps me up at night? Uh, we are in our um, asset management business. We're currently raising, well, we will be raising our fifth fund uh, here in 2024. So just thinking about um, kind of the expansion of our family office network. When you're raising capital, you, you kind of have your friends and family, then you have your high net worth individuals, and then you have family offices who are essentially high net worth individuals that have made enough that they 
now have people that manage their money that are their own employees, and then you have institutional capital. So those are kind of the buckets of capital, and and uh, I'm just really thinking through a lot of that uh, on the process of raising that capital and who we who we speak to and structure and all that. But that's probably what keeps me up at night. Um, I am a mortgage banker at Comcap Advisors. I've been there for seven years uh, in the loan production commission side for the last four years. Um, at times it can feel like a little bit longer because my first year was 2020, which was a tough year to go from salary to commission in the finance world um, with COVID to start that. but. Luckily, 21 and 22 were strong. I got to see a taste of the good life then, and then last year, right back down to earth. Um, it was a tough year for finance, but uh, luckily, I, I work on a team with Kyle. He's been in the industry for 20 years. I got to see and work with him on the deals that he gets to work on, structure, negotiate terms, things like that. So. Um, great learning process, but already feels like I've seen two cycles in the short time that I've been in the industry. Um, Brain power, you know, there's a pretty big game coming up. San Francisco's minus one and a half, their favorites versus the Chiefs. Can they beat Patrick Mahomes and Taylor Swift's boyfriend? Um, I don't know, so I'm waiting to see what happens there. I don't know if you guys have any Super Bowl picks. That wasn't in the list of questions that came up, but uh, thinking about that. But no, seriously, it's more of, right now we're fortunate we have such a wide range of deals we're looking at we have a self-storage conversion deal in boston where we're quoting we have an industrial slash office deal bridge request in san jose and i air quote industrial i think there's one roll-up door in there somewhere so i'm going to call it industrial because office <laughs> is tough right now um, so and then we have just the general food groups of multi-tenant industrial, single-tenant industrial, unanchored retail, shadow-anchored retail. It's just that is taking up a lot of brain power right now. It's a good problem to have, a lot better than last year, but um, that's taken up a lot of room. And what keeps me up at night consistently would be my four-year-old daughter asking for another story or another hug or she's got to go to the bathroom. Um, but uh, professionally, the black swan event, what are, we, what are we not looking at? I feel like everybody has a hawkeye on unemployment rates, job growth, GDP, interest rates, obviously. What are we not seeing, though? You know, In 2007, everybody thought home mortgages were the safest investment you could make. And then in 2008, you see what happened. In 2019, was anybody talking about COVID? No, so what are we not looking at? Um, is what concerns me because all these other metrics, everybody's watching that. So that's what I think. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So from a high altitude, um, what are your expectations for this year for commercial real estate? I mean, I guess it's what's the state of the industry right now today? And Kevin? Yeah, I, I would, from a construction standpoint, keep in mind we're, we're the tail. So even though with these high interest rates and the architectural billing index, which tracks architectural billings, is starting to cool off a bit, we're still expected in the U.S. to grow somewhere at a 5 to 7%. And then in 25, it starts to flatten out. But uh, keep in mind, it flattens out at a very elevated level. So even though that may be no growth, it's still uh, substantially higher than it was back in uh, you know, kind of the belly of coming out of the GFC. Before you go, um, does the presidential election have any effect on that, on, on your industry? <laughs> there, there are some electeds here. I, I would simply say no. 
uh, <laughs> I, I don't think it really affects the financial markets or uh, our market uh, when you just look past the theatrics that are going on today. Thanks, Brandon. Yeah. Thanks, Connie, for that. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate Sorry. that. Uh, we're up here to talk politics, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, apparently, yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know. The, uh, when I think about 24, I think back to previous cycles, and I feel like we're going to have some decent price discovery in 2024. Um, you know, the when you look at the transaction volumes, when you compare, uh, let, let's just back up for a second. When you look at, if you look at first half of 2022 compared to last half of 2023, transaction volume in Las Vegas was down like 75 percent. And so when you had rental or when you had interest rates, if you look at the 10-year Treasury over that period of time, in the first half of 22 it was about two and a half percent, and the last half of 23 was about four and a half percent. So with the rise of interest rates, everybody's like, oh shit, what's my property worth now? And in commercial real estate, unlike public traded, uh, publicly traded securities, where you have a mark to market every day, I mean, I, I looked this morning before coming in here and Google had traded four, th four million times by 7.30, and the market's open at 6.30. In commercial real estate, you can have an office building in Summerlin that maybe you have five trades a year to go mark to market. And so it just takes a while for the changes of interest rates or COVID or the great financial crisis to really show up to what the value of your asset is. And the nice part about real estate is you could fill in on your uh, personal financial statement, whatever you think it's worth, and nobody knows until you go to sell it. And you don't have to sell it if you have long-term fixed rate debt on it. Um, and so I think 24 will be a, a good year for kind of price discovery. I heard the word uh, last year that I'd never heard before, a neutral leverage, where if you're buying a 5.75% apartment, you can get 5.75% debt at the time, and you're just hoping on rent growth, which I don't think is a great uh, investment philosophy when rental rates have ran 30% in the asset class. But uh, so anyway, that's what I'm hoping for this year is a bit more price discovery, but it just takes time to really have um, true price discovery, and, and I think rates are going <laughs> to determine that. Yeah, I would say to start this year, um, for us, we're very busy, and so are the other lenders that we speak with, whether that's CMBS, Life Insurance Company. They all have very full pipelines to start and are trying to get as much money out as they can. They all had bad years last year, too. I mean, I think the finance industry was down 70 to 80% for the most part as well when it comes to originating loans. So everybody is trying to make hay while we can. And our pipeline is pretty full into the summer, it looks like at this point, with quoting and offering term sheets and refis coming up that we're already working on now based on where rates are. Um, for the back half of the year, I don't know. It'll depend on if we do get rate cuts starting in June and maybe 25 basis points every meeting thereafter. That would be about 100 to 150 basis point reduction in the Fed funds and the prime rate. So we'll see if that can help keep momentum going. Um, but obviously there's some things in the back half that are unknown, so we'll kind of see what happens. But I can tell you that Kyle and I, for our goal, we are shooting for 2022 numbers. And so far, it looks like we are on track to do that. But again, I don't know what the back half of the year looks like. And that's where we'll really see um, what happens. And truthfully, if we can just get a 10-year treasury that stays around 4%, obviously, lower would be better. But if it just stays around 4%, where cost of capital, people can understand, investors, borrowers, tenants, everybody can kind of understand what it's going to cost to borrow 
that helps greatly. Even if it does go down, going down quickly or going up quickly, both are a problem because people don't understand what, what they're doing. And you know, if it's going down quickly, they're not going to do anything because it's just going to go down more tomorrow. And same thing, vice versa, if it goes up. So I just, we just need some stability. And I think 2024 could end up being pretty good. And Sebastian, since you brought up the Super Bowl, yeah. I'd like to talk sports and what kind of an impact, now that we're a sports town, has that had on commercial real estate? Yeah, I would say for us, again, we work with most lenders that are out of the Midwest, Pacific Northwest, East Coast, so they're not here in Las Vegas. And when I first started seven years ago, and that, that's not even that long ago, but we had to put together sheets. We called them economy at a glance that explained, you know, here's the... Um, traffic through McCarran Harry Reid Airport, here's the gambling winnings, here's all the things that are happening in town. Sports, having professional sports has legitimized Las Vegas to the rest of the country. Whether that's real or not, it still has, at least from the aesthetic and the impact of other people looking at Las Vegas, it has helped greatly. And we don't really have to sell Las Vegas anymore in these meetings with the lenders that are across the country and are not in Las Vegas. We used to have to do that every year we have a finance conference coming up next week, and we'll be talking to all of our lenders. And I don't think we need to sell Las Vegas as hard. We're not going to prepare that same sheet that we usually always handed out. And whether that ended up getting looked at or thrown in the trash later, I don't know. But um, we, don't, we don't have to sell anymore. And I think that's what sports teams have helped with. Yeah, I, I think it, it uh, definitely has uh, brought much more focus. Everybody I speak to out of market wants to talk to me about the sports. Uh, I do, though, still believe uh, Las Vegas is a cyclical market, and it, we haven't changed that. When you look at the definition of sports tourism, it's tourism. Um, but I do think it's better than it was in the great financial crisis. But I, I think when I talk to people about this, and they always ask me this question, or we'll just be chatting about it, a lot of times people will just kind of tell you what they want to hear. So if you're a developer, like you're like talking rate cuts. If you're a value-add investor, you're like, it, let's go up. Like it's like everybody has their own philosophy, and we just look at the stats. And as I mentioned, when you look at those time periods, like if you look at 2022 versus 23 uh, transaction volume, and really 22 really started to turn off as they started raising rates in March of 22. Uh, the U.S. was down 60 percent in transaction volume for commercial real estate. Well, you look at Las Vegas, we are down 75 percent. So clearly, we're more cyclical still than the United States. Uh, and then you look at Reno, another market that we invested in and have a, a logic office in, and Reno was down like 45%. So you could say that Reno is less cyclical than the overall market. Um, but I do think it definitely helps. Um, it brings great um, capital to town. It brings high net worth spenders to town. Obviously, we never saw the pricing homes that we have today. Um, it helps, and it's a step in the right direction, but I don't think we're all of a sudden Omaha, Nebraska for stability. Kevin, you want to address the sports question? I just want to know when we're going to get the NBA. <laughs> I, look, when I Ask moved Sebastian, here, he probably knows that. Well, I, when I moved here, go ahead. When I moved here, there was professional highlight at Valley, so I'm dating myself a bit. So <laughs> it, it is. We, we are levitating in this city in terms of of the experience economy we have created. I mean, we. We are, I mean, just think of the MSG Sphere, Formula One, and, and now the Super Bowl. Who would have ever thought that was possible here? So, um, you know, cities wait a lifetime to get those three events, and we have them in literally in six months. So it is a super exciting time to be here in this, uh, in this economy, in this city. So, Brendan, you brought up that uh, commercial real estate cyclical. Can you compare the cycle we're in now to the previous cycle? 
Sure. So um, there's an old saying that like market cycles uh, don't often have the same story, but they tend to rhyme. And who knows what this, if this is a slight cycle, if this is a major cycle, who knows? You just, uh, the definition of the future is uncertainty. You don't know. Um, but when I think about it, so in last cycle, in September of 2008, Lehman Brothers fell. And that was really like the start of like, oh, sh like things were like getting rough in late 07, early 08. But once that happened, people were like, okay, the show's over. Um, but in the properties after that period, really weren't performing well. I mean, you had tenants not paying rent. You had uh, high vacancies in shopping centers and office buildings and multi. You just had a lot of fundamental real estate issues that you don't have today. Um, and so transactions just shut off in 2009. But interestingly enough, when I look back at the data from like 06 to 09, transactions went down in Las Vegas about 80%. And transactions in uh, the time periods I just quoted went down and present went down like 75%, but it felt so much slower in 09. And I think the base, kind of like you mentioned uh, the construction numbers, the base of transactions, it was just a different base volume. Um, but the biggest difference was, uh, I think the properties uh, were not operating well, and there was no financing. So every single deal was a cash bid. There was no like, well, we're gonna go get debt from this lender, and their rates are a little higher than they used to be. And um, so when everything's valued for cash, property values just plummeted. Where today there's there's financing in the market and the operational the um, you know the, the the financials of the asset are actually operating better, um, but I think about the time frame it took. So then you go forward in March of 2010, we sold our first non-performing loan, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like finally we have a transaction again. And then in late 2010, some things started happening, but it really was 2011 was the bottom of the, of the market for pricing discovery and transaction volume. And then from there, it just kind of worked through REOs and, and uh, short sales, et cetera. But you, so you take that time period, and it took about three years to get from the event till um, the bottom. And so then I compare that to today, and does it, is it going to take three years? Is it that bad? I don't think it's that bad, obviously. Um, but there, the nice thing you have today is you have financing. It's just more expensive. Now, banks are, I'll call, shy. Uh, and it's not so much that they're shy about uh, the commercial real estate. Uh, it's about capital. And when you run a bank, you have to watch your capital because if you start to take, if you have a bad loan out there, let me back up for a second. Banks are leveraged at 10 to 1. So if we all want to start a bank, we put $10 million each. We have $40 million will be allowed through uh, bringing in deposits to go lend $400 million on commercial real estate or whatever it is that we lend on. So if you start to have losses in that or you have expected losses, you have to reserve capital so that your um, ratios don't go out of whack where the FDIC comes in and puts orders on you. And so the banks are worried about that, and that's why they're not just throwing money out like, you know, like crazy. They're wanting their, to keep their capital on hand. Um, but anyway, I, I say lending is just a bit more shy than it was in two, in, uh, before, but it's not gone away like it went away in uh, 2009. So. so how does this market compare to the rest of the nation? And Kevin, I know, are you still in North Dakota, by the way? Uh, we, have, oh. we are, indeed. Launched a magazine in North Dakota, got on a, a plane, and there's Kevin doing work up there. It gets 40 below. No, thank you. So how do we, how, as Nevada, how do we differ from the rest of the nation? Well, you know, outside um, weather, I, I would say, um, you know, we have built in a, in a lot of different uh, locations from Washington State all the way to New York, Chicago, New Jersey, um, the southern states, and Texas. And 
I would say, uh, and I know we complain at times about entitlements and permitting and, and that, but I, I would say if you travel and you build in and develop in other uh, locales, we are blessed here. Now, look, is it perfect? Absolutely not. But go try to get a project entitled in, in California or in particular in Austin where they're so backed up on, on permits. So I think, you know, look, it, it, it can be getting better, but we are very fortunate to here have a pro-growth, pro-business economy here in Nevada. So Sebastian, let's talk a little bit about capital and the market rates and what do you see in now? Uh, a huge range of different availability of capital, interest rates, things like that. But um, so when it comes to banks, I know we talk about them, you know, not being as open to lending these days, and that's true. Uh, and in the case that they aren't willing to, we have life insurance companies. There are CMBS lenders, and if you're looking at unstabilized asset, you have bridge and you have debt funds, like like Brendan mentioned. Um, life insurance companies are pretty aggressive right now. Um, they are generally known for conservative loans. They're low leverage, but the best interest rates you can find. Right now, their spreads over the treasury are anywhere from 165 basis points to 225, which basically means you're a high 5% interest rate or a low 6% interest rate from them. <coughs> CMBS lenders. They are on the other side of things, very aggressive. They can structure around almost anything. Um, their biggest pitch right now is full-term interest-only options. They have five-year full-term and 10-year full-term options that are completely interest-only. If cash flow is the most important thing to you, they can focus on that. Um, and their spreads are, they just recently came in as of this month. They're, they're kind of competing with life insurance companies almost. They're 250, 225 to 250 range, so mid sixes interest rates for them. Last couple years, they've been you know, 1% to 1.5% above life insurance companies just because of these are secondary markets. They, they feel like a loan, but they're really just a financial instrument that's put together, and your specific you know, retail property is just a small square in a box of a billion dollars worth of loans. And, so that's just sold off in the secondary market. But I do want to say, with banks and local and regional banks, we did 50% of our business last year with banks. Now, it wasn't a lot of business. It was down 80%. But um, we still have done a lot with banks. And I say wide range because you can have banks that are no longer lending or either saying that with their interest rate that they're no longer lending. We also have banks that are extremely competitive right now. And maybe they're just trying to take advantage of everybody else. Being on the sidelines, I don't know the inner workings of the banks and how their depository structure is set up and the strength of them, but they can be in the low 6% interest rate range or in the mid sixes. I mean, they're just as competitive. Is it harder to find? Absolutely. But is it there? Also, still yes. So there's been a little bit of chatter about banks slowing down or stopping funding commercial real estate projects. So what would be the options if they did? Yeah, so that would be those life insurance company and CMBS lenders for the permanent, you know, stabilized assets. And again, if you're looking for something that is not stabilized, say your property is 50% occupied or you're looking for construction and a bank is saying no, there are debt funds and construction lenders that are, they're higher cost. They're going to be somewhere in the 9 to 13% range 
we're working on a construction deal right now where I have two very different options. I have a bank option for that client at seven and a quarter interest rate for the construction of that deal. And then also looking at debt funds, it's 13% for that. And depending on the project, you know, 7% may be too high for that project to pencil. But also 13% could work because they don't want, they want to move quickly. They don't want necessarily some of the red tape that comes with banks and committee approval and things like that. So um, there are other options with banks. Usually they're, they're slightly more expensive on the unstabilized property types, but um, life insurance companies don't have deposits. They're, they're lending out premiums that people are paying every month and then they have actuaries telling them their yields need to match when they're going to have payouts and so they don't have the same um, structure and concerns with that that banks do. Um, so there's other options available. So Brendan, you wear a lot of hats. You do a lot of investments, brokerage stuff, you're all over the place. Uh, when you're looking at an investment property, what are the top three boxes that you need to check? Yeah, so uh, we uh, purchased 50 assets in the last 12 years. And uh, when you look back at what is what kind of characteristics those assets had, um, first it goes into the market. And we get into a market, we understand it really well. Obviously, I was born and raised in Las Vegas and grew up in the brokerage business here. So I, I feel like I could drive by a shopping center and be like, that shopping center was always vacant. And somebody could come in from out of town and be like, oh, there's a Target there. This is a beautiful shopping center. I'll pay 300 bucks a foot for it. And so when you have that knowledge being on the ground in the market, uh, it's just so crucial to our, our game of investing. And so uh, we, we understand a market first. So Reno, we spent a lot of time in Reno before we started investing capital there. If we find a third market we like, we're going to spend a lot of time there before we start investing. So market first, being market expert and understanding that. Uh, second is buying below replacement cost. So it's, we're big uh, margin of safety investors. And the best margin of safety we can have is if we buy an office building for 200 a foot, and we know to replace that asset's 400 a foot, we have a 50% margin of safety against somebody buying the piece of land next to us and developing. And then we also not only know replacement costs, we know the basis of our neighbors. So if I'm in at 200 a foot on an office building and I know my neighbors are in at 300 a foot and things go bad and we're having like a rate fight because office is a commodity product, um, then I can win and we keep our debt low, uh, which also helps you win. Um, and so uh, replacement cost is a big one. Um, and then a problem you can fix. And again, that's just, I think, through experience of uh, being in the business and leasing a lot of shopping centers, office buildings, industrial, whatever the asset class we're investing is. Um, there's some assets that are just shouldn't have been built or the market moved away from them um, and they just change so much that you, know, you have to have the knowledge of that you can actually fix the asset um, a lot of times and I would say we did this when we first started in 2011, you're just buying price per pound, and then you realize that it's harder to collect rent from the office tenant on Sahara and Decatur, which is our first office, Sahara and Lindell was our first office purchase, than it was when we bought uh, the building from Randy Black at Town Center 215. I was always nervous on this building at 5450 West Sahara that the tenants were actually gonna pay rent. And when we bought the building at Town Center 215, no tenant ever didn't pay rent. and so you start to learn about the, uh, uh, that. And then we also try to build in a good margin of safety on what we expect to earn on the asset, which I'll call return on cost, and what the exit cap rate's gonna be. But those are uncertain. You can think you're gonna 
make, and I, I always try to like, if my exit cap's a seven cap, and that's what I think it is, I try to have a yield on cost or a return on cost to be a 10 cap or 10% uh, return on cost. And that gives me a cushion that if I have 300 basis points between my exit cap and my stabilized basis, that a lot of things can go wrong. And I think I still won't have, which the worst result in investing is loss of capital. And so that, that's kind of what I, what I think about. Let's talk about costs. It's always a fun subject, right? So are tenant improvements getting cheaper? And since they're getting cheaper, is, is, there, is, there, a, is there a better strategy is what I'm saying? Yeah, um, this is where the developers won't ask me to come back again. Um, <laughs> so back to stress in our industry and fatigue. Um, so it, as, just to get some context this, we're entering into 2024 in the US, we're 540,000 workers short in our industry, in the construction industry, 540. So there's gonna be a lot of upward pressure from, uh, from a labor standpoint. Of course, we're not. We, we saw some hyper cost uh, inflation. You know, lumber went from where it traditionally would be in let's say $400 per thousand board feet. It went up to 1,700. Now it's in the mid 500s. Um, but there's, uh, we're operating at an elevated pace, so there, there are no deals. Uh, there may be, who knows happen, what happens with China uh, uh, with their ongoing struggles in real estate and their economy. Maybe that helps us. Um, but you know, I think what it really comes down to is you've got to be so efficient and smart about what you do develop. Um, you know, you, you think, or, and I'll, I'll give examples in office. So we did, in the last couple of years, we did CBRE's office, we did Collier's office, and we just finished Newmark's office. And they were very clever from a real estate standpoint how they laid out their office. I would submit every one of them probably shrank the footprint, but it's a more functional, useful office, a little bit of hoteling. Uh, each one of, when you walk in the door, there's a boardroom that can function into a common area that you can have an event space. So I think if you, you think of rents aren't necessarily going to get any cheaper, costs aren't getting any cheaper, maybe the land people will give us some good news today. But um, that, I think, is what we're seeing is just people are much more creative in terms of programming their space. So let's talk about what could stall the industry. I mean, we've got challenges, land availability, water, cost. What, do you see any of those stalling or the industry in Nevada? Me. No, you're on the spot. Uh, well, I'll pass it to Sebastian. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, if, if, if there's capital out there for founders, <clears throat> entrepreneurs go hog wild. When that gets shut off and this guy tells us we can't get debt anymore, that's when things go bad. Yeah. Um, stalling out of those three things, uh, I'm just going to softball that to an I don't know. But at least with costs and land availability, I guess cost of land, um, you can put those in an Excel sheet. And it, it works or it doesn't, um, from the lending perspective at least. Um, when it comes to water, that's kind of a more interesting thing that we get asked here and there from lenders. Again, working with lenders outside of Nevada. So they just see what's in the headlines, what, whatever's out there. Um, I usually have <coughs> excuse me, uh, a few points to bring up, you know, our high recycle rate. I think we had a, a panelist at some point in the last couple years from Southern Nevada Water Association say that we were at either 98% recycle rate or something like that, topping with Singapore in the world. 
Um, so that helps lenders get more comfortable. Talk about our, um, we got the, sh the first straw in the basin. So if it does start getting lower, California and Arizona will have concerns with water before Nevada does. Um, and then I also just recently saw that, so in 2023, we were in a tier two water shortage. And because we had a great rainy season at the end of the year, we're, we just moved back up into a tier one water shortage, which is good news for us. Um, but if you want me to dig any deeper into water, I just gave you everything I have. So don't tell me, don't ask me any other questions. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I, I would say it's more global events, not necessarily you know in in our region or in our state. I mean, we've you know you wake up every day. We've got two wars uh, going on. We've got constant you know tensions with China and China Taiwan. You've got North Korea. We've got now. Um, you know, a contagion maybe in the Chinese real estate market, border secure. I mean, it goes on and on. So I think, you know, um, of the many things that also keep me up at night, you just think of those because those can affect us in this economy uh, for sure. Yeah, it's probably the unknowns that everybody in the room isn't talking about at a coffee and all of a sudden something happens. And what's amazing to me is how quickly capital can just dry up and get scared. It happens so quick. And so, but it's probably something that we all don't talk about when we go to coffee. So since you brought politics up, does the presidential election. Should we hit religion? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Religion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cute crowd pleasers. Can we get a round of drinks up here? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think about, like, I've never looked at the 10-year treasury more than I've looked at it in the last, like, two years. Like, it's like every morning, I'm checking it like a stock, and it's crazy that that's the way it is. But I think about, I, I just don't believe that the government is disconnected from the Fed, and, like, that politics is not, dis I should say politics is disconnected from the Fed. And so in December, when the Fed comes out, and they say, we're gonna have all these rate cuts. All my friends who run hedge funds were happy because they get paid on December 31st and the stocks ran wild and they got, they made much more comp than they thought they were gonna make on December 1st. But um, I just believe that there's other factors out there that, are, that make people say certain things that may or may not be true. And I think the Fed is always wrong. Like they're just not proven over a long period of time that you know, they're like, oh, inflation, it's transitory. It's, you know, this is not real. Uh, so anyway, who knows? But I do think that you know one party may want lower interest rates, one party may want higher interest rates. I have no control over that. So what I do try to control is just when we invest capital, just try to be super safe. One quick follow-up to Brendan's point that the Fed doesn't know. So they have a dot plot that comes out after every meeting, and each Fed chairman puts where they think the next rate is going to be at. They're wildly wrong every time, and they're the ones in their room. So how are we supposed to know where rates are going to go? Um, whether that's political or not, it's just, that's just the data. So that's how I look at it. Yeah. So we're running out of time pretty quickly here. If you guys have questions, jot them down. We're getting ready to enter that phase of it. But I did want to address the pandemic, since we're talking about you know, things that happen globally. What lasting effects did that have on Nevada commercial real estate? You want to take that first? Yeah, I'll start with the, the funny one. Uh, this morning, I'm saying bye to our I have four girls, and I'm saying bye to the, my girls and Katie. And 
the girls look at me and they're like, why are you so fancy today? I'm not usually dressed up going to the office. So that's one change I've seen since the pandemic is I definitely dress more casual to work than I used to dress. Um, but the, uh, I, I think the, uh, like the whole return to work and out of office and just uh, remote work, um, that's the most obvious one that, that you see out there. Um, we're not scared of office. We like office. We like that people are scared of office. Uh, but it's the right office, not, not, uh, not certain office assets. Um, but I think that's probably the biggest thing I think about is that. And then you have this run up in uh, rental rates. And is it going to hold uh, or not? Um, those are some things I think about besides wearing a sport coat. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you look great this morning, Brendan. So, so we're going to open it up to questions. I, I have a ton of questions more. We could go on for three more hours up here. But I wanted to give you guys an opportunity. So does anyone have any questions? Raise your hand, and Dan is going to come So by. thank you, Connie. I do have the audience has come strong again. I usually don't tell any behind-the-scenes pre-call information, but Brendan is so smart, he did our pre-call while on the treadmill. That's how smart he is. <laughs> True story. Um, Connie, actually, you have a question. You talk to a lot of com companies personally and with your magazine. Why are you optimistic about 24 or 25? What's your take on the business side of this, not the real estate, which obviously real estate follows or starts? Do you know, I, it's interesting because every year in October, we go out for renewal season. A lot of our advertisers are contract advertisers. And I try to get the story. And I, until this last year, I was pretty cocky about it. I thought that I knew what was going on. I'm getting such mixed reviews right now, I'm not sure. It, it, it tends to lean more to the positive, depending on the industry. I mean, we're pretty broad in our editorial content, so there are some industries that run counter to everything else, like mining. Mining's doing great when the economy's down. You know? And then, so that's how we survive. We're pretty diverse in that. But if I had to, I mean, I'm optimistic because of the people that I talk to that are a hell of a lot smarter than I am. And so I tend to lean into that, and, and I'm just pretty optimistic anyway. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Sebastian, this one's very detailed, so follow me. For a stabilized industrial asset looking at a LifeCo or CMBS vacant or loan, what would the best debt service coverage ratio be, and how would that translate to loan to value? <laughs> we have a very, very smart yeah. audience. Yeah, That's why that question that. was asked. Yeah. yeah, I like Brendan's point. You got to sign a fee agreement for that kind of action. Um, so, life insurance company, industrial. Um, you want to get detailed, let's talk some detailed stuff. So life insurance companies, they have rating agencies that look at their debt, and you need to be above a CM1 rating to get the best pricing. And for us in our world, that means above a 1.5 debt service coverage ratio in general. Uh, leverage, what that comes out to, it depends. Usually it means lower. Um, so somewhere between 55 to 65% LTV. Uh, industrial cap rates are pretty darn low right now. and to Brendan's point earlier about neutral leverage, you are probably having still negative leverage in industrial, uh, depending on where cap rates are. I, I don't, you know, I'm not an industrial broker expert, so I don't know where those cap rates are, somewhere around six, maybe lower, five and a half, I don't know. 
But if rates are six and six and a quarter for something like that, you are hoping to get neutral and maybe negative, which really affects your LTV uh, in those scenarios. From CMBS, you don't have that same minimum debt service coverage ratio of 1.5. You have a lower one. It's usually 1.25 for them. Um, and that's on a 30-year amortization versus a 25-year amortization, which has better cash flow since you're not paying off as much principal. I see eyes glazing already, so I'm just going to chill there. But, um, but life insurance company, better rates, more conservative. CMBS, higher rates, more leverage. <laughs> Outstanding. Um, probably both for Kevin and Brendan. Uh, with the availability of land outside of Apex at a very low, do you see a turnaround on the, the urban core, some of the, you know, the highlands, any of the industrial markets in the center of town? like other markets have done, Chicago, Los Angeles, et cetera? Go first. No. And you can both answer it separately or see how the first person answers. Yeah, I, I'll take it broader just on land scarcity. Um, yeah, it's definitely something I think about that Las Vegas is like a 25 by 25 mile ring and we're surrounded by national parks that besides like leaking out to Apex, we don't have a ton of areas to expand to. Um, it's all going to be an economic game. If you can buy an asset for land value and make it pencil and be closer to population, you will. But if it just you can't get there because the assets are valued too high and you need to look at residual land value, it will just keep growing out to the next suburb, whether it's Apex in Las Vegas or um, Trick in Reno, et cetera. But I, I think if the land value would be there. Um, you, you're going to see that, but residential, um, office, and retail things that need to be more around uh, city centers. I think we'll have a nice uh, lift through Las Vegas running out of land. We recently purchased some assets in downtown Las Vegas, and I'm really high on um, kind of downtown and just that whole philosophy that we're hitting our edges on on uh, on the outskirts. Yeah, I would just echo that. I mean, and I'll, I won't speak to it from an industrial standpoint, but if you think of the office and retail, the you know, resurgence of, uh, or the continued momentum, let's say in Water Street and Henderson, and then uh, you know, alone downtown Las Vegas, we have $240 million of multifamily, either started or will start in the next three months. And so th that, uh, if you kind of that critical mass of services and and you know the coolness of downtown with all the F and B that that is already down there, it, I think it just continues to build momentum. And the folks that are making bets downtown in particular have big capital behind them. There are opportunity zone plays. Uh, one of our projects, it's a hundred million dollar uh, mixed use project, and they've got seventy percent equity in it. So, and these are smart folks um, uh, making those bets. So. Again, I, I think you know another reason why we should be bullish on uh, on Vegas. It's just not what we think in this room. It's uh, I think Sebastian said it well. It's other folks from other areas looking at us making large financial bets on Las Vegas. Brendan, <laughs> off and on. Okay, Brendan. Um, there's a term about money on the sidelines. So we've been hearing trillions of dollars and all this stuff. When you're doing your fifth fund. What do you expect the, the investors to be saying about their money on the sidelines in this market only? 
Yeah, I, I mean, they're investing with us because they hope we have an edge of operational abilities, market knowledge, deal sourcing, and, uh, and their money, is cut, you know, when we raise our funds, they're what you call blind pool funds. You invest with us because you hope we know what we're doing, but we're not calling you saying, we're about to buy this building, do you want to come in or not? We control it. Um, so I, uh, I, they're, they're hoping we do the exact same thing we've done with the last four funds. We thankfully have returned around 20, 25% uh, return to our partners uh, after fees, and we've only used about 40% debt to do that in Las Vegas and Reno specifically. So really the pitch to them and what they're signing up for is just keep doing what you've been doing and be careful. And we flow back between debt and equity. So if we think the asset values are too high, we're happy to sit in debt for a little bit and earn some yield and then kind of go back and forth. But to it, there's always capital on the sidelines. There's always intelligent capital out there. There's always competitors. There's a new competitor forming every day. Um, and I think there, when you look at, if th there's going to be some, some opportunities be, if rates are just hold where they're at, because if you look at it, there's something like $5.2 trillion of commercial real estate debt in the United States, and half of that expires before 2027, and banks, I think, hold about half of that. So you're gonna have some issues to work through, and I think there's enough capital, there's enough operators out there that um, everybody will have a little bit of stuff to do, but who knows how much. Hey, something Please. not necessarily super intelligent to that, but just on the terms that we use in our in our industry, you know, talking about capital on the sidelines, flight to quality, uh, cautious optimism. If I can give you one for the finance world that I heard that was pretty good, it was prudent but optimistic capital for this year. That's the best one I heard. Put it on a mug. That gets you fired up, hopefully, for 2024. <laughs> prudent but optimistic capital. <laughs> And Connie, if you have any questions, you can slip in any time. We always talk about retail, industrial, multifamily, the asset classes. Um, sometimes lodging gets overlooked, the Spring Hill Suites, the Elements, any of that. You probably three can all answer that or talk on that subject of what do you think their future is in this market going forward with all the tourism and more residents moving here? I've never invested in the asset class, so I, I probably thought one great to speak on it. I'll punt that down to my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any money for this, Sebastian? Can you hit that one more time? What, lodge? What, would you loan money on a Hilton Gardens or a Spring Hill Suites or any of that? There's, there's money for everything. So potentially, I don't have a ton of experience on the uh, hotels like that in those situations, but absolutely, I can find it. <laughs> Connie, do you have anything? We have. A I, I'm good. I, I just I, I wanted to thank these guys. I, well, we, we'll, I learned a lot. We can get a few more in. Okay. Um, Kevin, why are are TIs higher here than your other markets? Uh, they, I, I would say, they're on par with. Phoenix in particular, I think about the states we compete against. I, I don't think we're at a competitive advantage or disadvantage, but certainly in the, the urban areas, I mean, if you just, we don't build in San Francisco, but I mean, you just look at the data that comes out of there, um, they are very frothy. Although, you know, TI's here, I think, um, Tom, we're at, at in commons, we're, you know, we're starting at, at these class A tenants are 150, 160 a foot, and we've got some that, one in particular may spend $400 a foot. That doesn't include FF&E, furniture and, and the like. So 
Um, those are those are big bets. Now again, they're getting very creative with their space. So, um, but 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 again, back to costs. I don't I don't those costs will not be coming down anytime soon. Yeah, I have a question actually to you on that. So when we raised our, our first fund in 2013, uh, I looked at I was trying to look at construction pricing, and I found a chart online that was from like 1955 till this time was 2013. And it showed a chart of construction pricing, and the only time it pulled back was 0809, and it pulled back like 0.5 percent. And like the, uh, you know, there's a lot of cycles between 55 and 2013. So I guess my question to you is, do you really ever expect construction pricing to go down, or is like this is the new bar, and and this is like death and taxes, and construction is more expensive next year than it was this year? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and there, obviously, there's many factors that go into that, but uh, um, which you know I've already mentioned. But yeah, they they, they won't. You know, uh, uh, labor is sticky. Those wages will not come down. So. So I remember when there was the big spike in lumber, and I have a lot of friends that are builders, developers, and. I would meet with them and they're moaning and groaning and you know rates were just crazy out the roof and I'm just oh my poor builder friends. And then I got hit with a 25% increase and realized wait a minute, paper is made out of wood too. <laughs> and I had much more sympathy for them after. I had one, one other question to you guys because everybody that I'm meeting with whether it's in commercial real estate or finance or whatever, they're having a, a pretty big challenge with people. And I don't see a lot of high school students saying, hey, I want to go into real estate. How are you guys bridging that gap, and how severe is the shortage? Well, uh, back to lumber. So uh, the one, one thing is we didn't in that time period where it went from 400 to 1,700, we didn't have a shortage of trees. So a bit of profit taking in that. Uh, some floods, but not a shortage of trees. Um, yeah, you know, we, look, we we um, we have worked. I know the folks at McCarthy, and there's a number of builders here in the room. Uh, we work very hard on our organization, AGC. It has to start at the dining room table when they're young. There is somewhat of a still a stigma to get into construction, which is beyond me because it's a very technical, high-paying, incredible career you can have. Um, but we have to start early on, and and. Unfortunately, we have you know the baby boomers starting to retire. Um, we have done a very good job of bringing more women into our industry, which is really exciting. Um, I'll I'll uh, hand it off to you. Yeah, uh, people obviously people businesses are just tough. They they are. But if you feel like you have again an edge and you're good at dealing with people and you can understand people, you can be really good at them. But the um, the thing I think about more on the people side, which this is just uh, interesting to me. I've been in the business 20 years, and I don't feel like I'm like a, like like about to retire in the business. But when we're hiring these kids, I'll call them, they're like 22 years old. What they know about technology, they've been learning since they're like six. And I don't have social media besides LinkedIn, and I don't know like the people in my office always joke with me about my techno technological skills. Can't even say the word. And so, um, uh, what I've found with people is there's a stigma out there that this generation of call it 20 to 30 year olds are, they don't want to work hard and you know, all this. There's some really gems out there that are younger that have a knowledge that they didn't 
I wouldn't invest with them to buy a piece of commercial real estate because they haven't they don't have the experience of that. But their knowledge of technology and how it advances and the speed of technology and now with AI and like I, I, for example, a job description. You just put it in OpenAI, and it gives you one like this. That's you can edit it really quickly and be online. Instead of taking like two hours to do it. So anyway, the thing that I've really been impressed with over the last like 24 months is hiring young people that don't have business experience but have crazy technolo technology experience that uh, I just don't have, and it's it's pretty cool to be coupled up with them. Yeah, I'll say on our end, we just hired an analyst um, and scooting back a little bit, just getting involved with UNLV, it's great that UNLV has the real estate program there to introduce people. I went to UNLV uh, about 10 years ago and I didn't even know real estate existed back then. I have a finance degree and an MBA from there, but still never even thought about real estate at that time. So it's huge that you know people in their 20s are already having a focus on real estate and know that that exists and know that there's a market here in Las Vegas that has jobs for that. Um, I think that's huge. But jumping back to the analysts, I think we had, and this is probably a better question for Kyle, but I want to say it was over 100 applicants um, for that position. So it seems like things are moving in the right direction there. Um, and a lot of well-qualified people are, are looking into the industry, whether they're coming from just a general finance background like myself or just knowing real estate beforehand before they get to us. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank the audience. We continue to get over 200, 250 people each time. I'd like to thank the panelists. I'd like to thank the elected officials. Uh, remember the nice, nice things that Kevin Burke said about the building department <laughs> when your name's on the stack. So thank you, everyone. Cassie, away to you. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.